a real estate professional can be one person inside of a marriage, correct? And still there was their married filed joint file taxes can still receive that credit, correct? Absolutely. Yeah. One spouse, one spouse has to meet it. And then you can, you can use it to offset the income of the other spouse who's not a real estate professional. And so I, one thing that we talk about a lot, not so me and Dan are very, very um, passionate about educating our military community. And there are a lot of spouses that, that stay home with the kids that manage, um, you know, just the household in general. Yep. So if they were to be the front runner in managing the properties and doing these types of things, that could be a conversation that they could have with their CPA where they could qualify potentially as a real estate professional. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's a home run scenario. You know, you have a spouse that's, that's can dedicate their time to managing the rentals or at least managing the business. Mm -hmm. And you know, the other spouse is the one on the ground floor making it all happen. It's, <laughs> no pun intended, but a perfect marriage. Hey, how's it going? This is Dan Wynn and Mike Glassby. And this is the Military Cash Flow Podcast, where we teach service members how to build wealth and create passive cash flow through real estate. We cover real deals, real numbers, and real lessons learned from other successful investors. Now, whether you're watching this on YouTube or you're listening on the podcast, we need you to like, share, and subscribe. Now, let's get started creating this military cash flow. Hey, what's going on, guys? This is Dan Wynn. Mike Glassby. With the Military Cash Flow. Today, we have a very special guest. It's uh, my accountant, uh, Mr. Nick Aola. He's up there in uh, New York City. It's actually pretty far east from, from me right now. I'm in New York as well. But um, yeah, Nick, would you like to please introduce yourself? Say a little bit about yourself, please. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you guys for having me. Uh, as you said, my name is Nick Aola. I, we run Aola CPA, and we're a virtual CPA firm. We work exclusively with real estate investors, real estate businesses, uh, and I invest in real estate also. So thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Thank, I know you're going to provide a lot of value for the other investors out there. Um, I've been talking to my buddies all, you know, pretty much all this week about uh, tax time. And I've been saying, hey, man, my guy, Nick, man, he's been, he's been killing my tax write-offs, dude. You got to talk, <laughs> talk to him. So I'm trying to send some guys your way so you can help them out as well. But um, yeah, so let's, let's talk about where you started at. How'd you, um, so actually, let's talk about the, uh, how'd you get into accounting first? Or how'd you get to become a CPA first and then roll into how'd you marry that with real estate or why'd you choose that niche, that, that specific niche? Yeah, absolutely. So accounting, now growing up, I always liked math and that's how, you know, most people equate accounting with math, right? So I always liked that. And when I was getting into college, you know, you, you, the school I went to, you either had accounting or finance. Those are the two main business majors. So with an accounting degree, you can always do finance with a finance degree, you can't always do accounting. So I figured, you know what, let's try this. And then, you know, believe it or not, I like tax the best. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's a little unconventional, but I always enjoyed tax. I always enjoyed like the flow of it. And, you know, then you realize that you can really help people along the way saving taxes. A lot of people don't know about taxes. And even if they do, they don't know how to save taxes. So it was always an interest to me. Uh, as far as the real estate goes, I kind of, you know, I always grew up in real estate. My family's in real estate. I've always been interested in it. So as far as the accounting goes, like being, becoming a CPA, I, I thought, man, you know, the, the tax code, it's like 80,000 pages, right? 80,000 pages. How can I remember all this and help all these people in all these different industries? It just didn't make sense. It's not, it's impossible to do. So, you know, I thought, let's truncate that and focus in on one industry 
one industry that I like, something that I want to do, real estate investing, and let's know that really well. Uh, and then, you know, I started investing myself and you talk to people who are just like me, just like you guys, and uh, you start to develop a specialization and more of an expertise that's focused in on one area. Uh, so, you know, just over time, it just made more sense, you know, focus in on one thing. And the same thing goes for real estate as an investor, right? Focus in on one thing, know that really well, and then master it. Uh, and, and that's exactly how, you know, the decision was easy after realizing that to just marry the two. Yeah, Gary Keller, the one thing, right? Yeah, man. I, I love that book. Let me, let me ask you something. So I'm going to backtrack a little bit. You said while you're in school, you just started to really uh, focus on accounting because you enjoyed it. What about accounting beyond just the math? Like what was it for you? Was it, did you have like some inspiration, some awe-inspiring moment? Oh no, it wasn't a cool story, man. No cool story. I'm just, a, I'm a bean counter at heart, man. I, just like that. I like putting things in different categories and making sure everything looks nice at the end of the year. And obviously when you're dealing with money, that's, that's always a plus. So it just, I don't know, nothing, nothing special, no one thing, but actually, you know, I had a few really good professors uh, and they were all in the accounting field. So they made it a little more interesting, which is a hard thing to do with accounting, uh, especially as a college student. Right. So um, yeah, that was, uh, it just wound up flowing that way and, and, that, and it worked out. Nice. It's crazy. Tax code is like the most mysterious thing. And, and I say, you know, there's a lot of advantages to real estate, right? We got the debt pay down, we got the appreciation, we got the cash flow. Yep. And then one of the things we got is taxes. And that's one of the, the very, very few talked about things. Um, because just like you said, not too many people know, uh, know much about it, especially when it comes to real estate, right? So um, what are some of the things that, uh, that you most commonly see um, from real estate investors that, that they could, that they're not maybe using uh, the best or they're not, you know, taking advantage of certain tax codes the best? Yeah, absolutely. And that's a great question. And just to touch on your point about taxes, you know, not really many real, not many real estate investors really uh, getting too in depth on taxes. Cause most of the time, if you're, especially if you're a buy and hold investor, when you're analyzing your property taxes, you think property taxes, right? That's what you're thinking. That's what you're budgeting for. And then all of a sudden at the end of the year, Uncle Sam knocks on the door and says, no, 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 we got income taxes too. So that's something that we want to make sure that we always keep in mind that we're, we're monitoring that. And uh, Dan, you know that we try to keep our handle on that throughout the year, make sure we're, you know, we're, we're controlling that. And what's your tax liability going to be? And what can we do to, to mitigate that, right? Um, so a lot of things you see with, with real estate investors and taxes especially, it's so individualized right? Everything that you do is dependent on your situation. You know, you can have a similar portfolio to somebody else, but a completely different income situation, or maybe somebody's married and somebody isn't, uh, you know, you have a real estate professional, maybe somebody else has a W2 job. These are all different things that you have to look at each situation, you know, separately. Uh, and that's what I love about it. That's, there's no cookie cutter or uh, one size fits all strategy. So you really got to get in the nitty gritty, but a lot of common things we see is for, for the most basic, I guess, returns and investors, especially buy and hold, is depreciation. Uh, we have so many returns that come, that come across our desks with, without depreciation deductions, uh, which means either there's no basis assigned to the property or there is basis and you know, whoever was preparing the tax return, whether it was self-prepared or somebody else, didn't depreciate it. And what a lot of people don't know is that depreciation is not an option. It's, it's required. So, so let's, 
let's break yeah. that down a little bit. Depreciation. I, I don't know anything about like, you know, to our listeners out there, let's just say, I don't know anything at, at all about depreciation. Can you explain yep. that? Uh, what does that really mean um, for me as an investor? Excellent question. Yeah. So depreciation is basically how much are you able to write off the property over time? Uh, so when you purchase the property, you can't write that off all in year one. What the IRS does is they assign what's called a useful life to the property. Residential real estate is 27 and a half years. Commercial real estate is 39 years. So they're basically saying that's how long the property is going to last in the eyes of the IRS. So you take that purchase price and you allocate it over that useful life and you get to write off a portion of that every year. The benefit of it, it's a non-cash deduction. So that's not coming out of your pocket. So you may be pocketing cash flow, but it's a tax, it's a tax write-off depreciation. So uh, tax-free cash flow is, is certainly possible. It's very common uh, with, with rental real estate, especially over here in New York with high prices. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, that, that's the beauty of, of depreciation. And um, like I said, it isn't an option. You have to do it. Uh, so you get into things like when you sell the property, recapturing that depreciation, the IRS will recapture that whether you deducted it or not. Mm -hmm. So we want to make sure we get that figure right, we maximize it, and we take it every year that you can. Exactly. So just breaking it down just one step further again for any, any listeners that have no idea what we're talking about right now. So if I have $100,000 that I brought in in cash flow uh, over the year and one on one of my properties and then, you know, the useful life for my you know, 27 and a half year four unit residential home is that's $10,000 for that specific mm -hmm. year. I get to take $10,000 off of my off of my taxable income, correct? Making it absolutely right. Yep. Making it 90, making my taxable income now $90,000, meaning, well, in this situation, I'm probably not in a different tax bracket, but that $10,000 could make the difference between a different, how, how the percentage of taxes that you're paying overall, correct? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It plays a, an extremely important part. And you, and you don't only have to depreciate the property. You, any improvements you make to the property, any furniture you buy, if you're doing maybe short term rentals or any, you know, equipment or, whatever that you, any you know rehab renovation anything that you could capitalize that gets depreciated too so yeah it's definitely important to make sure you're you're capturing everything for sure let me this is a little bit more i guess a specific question now is, is it for depreciation in order to actually depreciate any type of item is there a certain dollar amount that it first must exceed it depends on the asset so generally yes you want to the the tipping point is $2,500. So if you if you have an expense that's under 2,500, in most cases, you can write that off in full. Uh, I say most cases, because as with anything in taxes, there's always exceptions. Mm -hmm. So you wanna make sure that you're analyzing every transaction independently anyway, but that's a good general rule of thumb. If it's over 2,500, most likely you'll have to capitalize it if it's uh, you know a betterment adaptation or restoration, uh, That's that's, the actual words the IRS uses. So you want to be sure that obviously you're looking at each at each payment made and each and each bill and invoice, but generally that's that's the rule. And to take it, I guess, one step further, mm -hmm. it's not by payment. So if you have a, a contract that's ten thousand dollars and you make five equal installments of two thousand dollars equal payments, mm -hmm. you can't write off each one because each payment is under twenty five hundred. It's the total contract value. Perfect. Yeah. And what, what, what I really like there is you just said that everything in taxes is pretty much, you know, there's always a loophole or there's not necessarily a loophole, but there's another way to do it. Right. 
Um, right. There is no one size fits all. And that right there, very specifically, you can say, hey, instead of depreciating this property because you've made so much taxable income, maybe we should just take it as a write-off uh, for certain items. Or maybe we can break it up and, and divide it. So that's why you guys need a CPA. <laughs> yeah. That's it right there. Big time. I, once you start acquiring properties, I definitely don't uh, advise that you go at it alone. Uh, Nick had to amend like what two years worth of my taxes. So I went up and tried to do it alone. Uh, I was not right. And uh, one of the coolest things I think uh, that, that you you taught me, I learned from you, was um, about the you know. So I live in New York now, and I have properties in Georgia. And when anytime I go down to Georgia to visit my properties to do something that's associated with the upkeep of my property, uh, it's a tax deductible um, expense. Can you expound on that, please? So, like, and put that in like the the most layman's terms as possible, because um, I, I don't know if everyone really knows this, because I, I didn't know it at the time. So, definitely, yeah, travel is is a major deductible expense and one that's often overlooked. Uh, so especially if you have out-of-state properties, so you can make your entire trip deductible uh, if you structure it correctly. So when I say entire trip, I'm really referring to the cost of the travel. So maybe airfare or um, however, whatever mode of transportation and lodging when you get there. So in order to be 100% deductible, you just got to make sure the trip is over 50% business. So let's use an example, uh, a weekend trip to go visit Dan, one of your properties. If you have, uh, you know, you're setting aside four days to go visit the property, we got to make sure three of them are business, right? Over 50%. We want to make sure that it's a pr pr uh, primarily a business trip. Uh, it may sound a little hard to do at first, but if you really break it down, it's not. And the main reason being is because travel days are automatically business days. So your travel day there and your travel day back it's automatically business. So that's two right there. So you really have to spend one day when you're there doing business stuff. And that's easy to fill as long as you, you know, you have the right itinerary. So I'd always recommend, um, you know, talking with your accountant before you go and saying, look, this is what I want to do. How can we structure this to make sure on paper, this is deductible. And then you can write off hundred percent of your, your airfare, hundred percent of your lodging. You can write off your meals, uh, well, 50% of your meals when you're over there. And any other business expenses you may have, you know, if you attend attend <clears throat> attend a seminar or or something, or you're you know you're taking a, a property manager out to lunch or whatever it may be, um, you know, those expenses are are all deductible. And the most important thing, keep track of those receipts, keep track of your time logs, keep an itinerary, uh, because as long as you're you're doing your record keeping, uh, if you did get audited by chance then it's not as scary as people make it out to be. As long as you have your records, you're, you, you're in a good position. Let, let me ask you a little bit about that. I, just because you mentioned it, when auditing, everybody's is scared of the big yeah. bad audit. Yeah. Um, I, like you said though, as long as you keep your, your good records, your time logs and all the receipts and all these other items, is there a certain way that you recommend that the average everyday real estate, real estate investor maintains that type of document? maybe an Excel spreadsheet, uh, just what, what's your suggestion? Yeah, definitely. That's a great question. So as far as receipts go, I'll, I'd recommend uh, digital. You know, you don't want to be fumbling around with little pieces of paper all year. And then when your accountant asks you about a transaction in February, you know, who knows if you even have it. So I always say digitize everything, uh, use cloud software that's free and available to you, Google Drive, Dropbox, iCloud, whatever you use. But 
make it organized. Use some kind of folder structure, right? You know, maybe do a folder for each year and then subfolders for each month. That way you can just snap a picture, put it into that folder. Maybe you jot down a little note on the receipt or you name the file something, that way you remember it. And that way you can easily find it. If someone says, hey, what happened this month? What'd you buy? You can just go right to that folder and you'll know exactly what's there. Uh, that's, that's the best thing for receipts. Uh, believe it or not, the IRS actually doesn't require you to keep receipts under $75 unless it's for lodging. But I always recommend keep all receipts anyway, just to get yourself in that habit, right? Like anything else, it's human nature. You get yourself in the habit of snapping receipts, uploading it, it becomes, you don't even think about it anymore. So you just do it. And then that way you don't have to worry that, you know, is this 74.99 or 75.01? <laughs> you don't have to worry about How that. Long how long would you say to hold on to those receipts? You don't have to hold on to them for, for, you know, I would say, I would say hold on to them for at least five years. Um, a lot of people like to do it for seven years. Some people like to do it for 10 years, but you know, they don't take up too much space. So if you have that, that's why I say digitize everything. If you have it in a folder, it's, it's pretty easy just to keep it. And then by the time, if you get to the point where you're filling up that cloud storage, you're probably safe to get rid of the older seats. <laughs> yeah. And uh, just Mike, to touch on your other one about time records, that's another important one. So if you're doing travel, time logs are super important, you know, journals, diaries. If you're a real estate professional, time logs are extremely important. So uh, we see a lot of Excel spreadsheets. There are time tracking apps out there, but a lot of the time tracking apps are meant for, you know, employer employee relationships. I haven't found one that's self-time tracking that kind of does everything that I would look for as a CPA, well, I guess, and an, invest, and an investor. Um, so if anybody finds, if anyone out there knows, I'm happy to find out what that is because I'd love to have that resource. Uh, but yeah, I mean, just, just be diligent with it. Be practical with it. Um, you know, Excel spreadsheet is okay. Time, time in, time out, and description, and you're good to go. Yes, I think that leads right into a perfect question, Mike. Uh, we were talking right before we got on about a question he had, but actually, before we get to your question, Mike, um, just one thing that that uh, I guess. So I use QuickBooks um, and for for keeping records of my stuff, and and really, I think I think you recommended that to me, uh, Nick, because mm -hmm. I suck at keeping track of all of my <laughs> <laughs> all of my stuff. But um, the the only thing that's uh, that I don't like about QuickBooks though is when you charge like so anytime you charge something, it takes a while to actually upload to QuickBooks to take the picture to add to that actual, um, yep. that actual transaction. But um, other than that, QuickBooks is, is QuickBooks is, is really good um, as far as keeping track of everything, especially those things that are under $75. So sure. um, QuickBooks also has um, a time log. Uh, so yep. I, to, which leads perfectly into this next conversation. The reason I keep my time log is because I try to qualify as the real estate professional, mm -hmm. which I would like for you to please expound on. <laughs> what is a real estate professional? Yeah. Okay. So real estate professional, this is one of the most widely debated topics in the code, in, in, his, in tax history, uh, because it's exploitable. Uh, it's, it's definitely audible, auditable. So you want to make sure that you have all your ducks in a row with real estate professional. You don't want to mess around with real estate professional. <clears throat> There's a lot of nuances and I won't bore the audience with all the details. So I'll try to be as general and, and uh, I guess simplistic as possible as far as real estate professional goes. But basically your, your starting point is two qualifications. The first being is, uh, do you spend over 50% of your time in real estate related activities? The second one being, 
can you meet the 750 required hours per year in that real estate related activity? So you have to spend 750 hours and over half your time has to be in real estate. This is where a lot of people get tripped up, tripped up is the 50% one, the, the over half your time is because it's impossible to do that with a full-time job. If you have a full-time job and you're a W-2 employee, 99% of the time you will lose in court. And there's court cases to prove that. Um, so, you know, it's, it's just impossible to, to, I mean, certain people, I shouldn't say impossible because certain people, maybe it's true, but the burden of proof is on you, the taxpayer, right? The IRS, they don't have to prove anything. They're going to come knocking on the door and say, okay, you make me believe this and you have to make them believe it. So if you're working 40 hours a week at a W2 job, you're, you're, it's way more than an uphill battle. It's like, you know, 89 degree battle. <laughs> uh, so you want to make sure that you, uh, it, and, and we see that all the time, full-time W2 workers, real estate professional. And, you know, the appeal there is that you're writing off rental losses against your W2 income, but really you're, you're, you might be shooting yourself in the foot there. So you, you want to make sure that you can, you can safely pass both of those tests. So let me ask you this. Um, so a real estate professional can be one person inside of a marriage, correct? And still there was their married filed joint file taxes can still receive that credit, correct? Absolutely. Yeah. One spouse, one spouse has to meet it. And then you can, you can use it to offset the income of the other spouse who's not a real estate professional. And so I, one thing that we talk about a lot not so me and Dan are very, very um, passionate about educating our military community. And there are a lot of spouses that, that stay home with the kids that manage, um, you know, just the household in general. Yep. So if they were to be the front runner in managing the properties and doing these types of things, that could be a conversation that they could have with their CPA where they could qualify potentially as a real estate professional. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's a home run scenario. You know, you have a spouse that's, that's can dedicate their time to managing the rentals or at least managing the business. Mm -hmm. And you know, the other spouse is the one on the ground floor making it all happen. It's, <laughs> no pun intended, but a perfect marriage. It really is. Um, so you want to, you want to make sure that really when you're doing this, obviously the record keeping is important, right? The record keeping, the time log, that's all important, but you also have to look at your situation. There are instances where real estate professional is actually a negative consequence. You know, you may not want to qualify for that. And there's certain examples. Um, you know, you want to make sure, first of all, your rentals, or whatever activity that usually it's rentals, your rentals are operating at a tax loss. If it's producing taxable income in, a, in excess of depreciation, the real estate professional status really isn't doing you too much good. Um, depending on your income, it may save you a little bit, um, but really it's, it's, not, it's not doing you any good because the whole benefit of it is converting these losses that you normally couldn't deduct against other income into active losses that now you can deduct. Uh, so it, it's, it's, there are certain instances where it may not be the best option for everybody. So, you know, we've cut, we've come across certain clients who've come from firms who, uh, you know, and, and not to talk down on any other CPAs or anything like that, but you know, a lot of people like to push real estate professional down, uh, down people's throats on an introductory call. And it's really not plausible. You have to make sure you're looking at every single detail like i said before everybody's different everybody's different so you want to make sure it's you know quality advice for that specific investor and make sure it makes sense and if it does 
then you run away with it. Nice. Yeah. That's, that's, uh, yeah, that's definitely great. The, is there any other way to possibly get around that? Like I still, let's say I still want to claim some of my tax write-offs or some of my rental, my vacancy write-offs, right. Or my vacancy, Mm -hmm. my vacancies. Um, how else could you possibly write that off? Yeah. So you're saying if you're not a real estate professional, I'm not a real estate professional. Yep. So if you're not a real estate professional, the IRS allows you to deduct up to $25,000 of rental losses against non-passive income. So that's, you know, W2 income, interest, dividends, anything that's not passive. Rental real estate, rental income is passive in nature. So you kind of have two buckets, passive and non-passive, and it's like oil and water. They don't mix. So passive losses can only offset passive income. So if you have rental losses, the IRS has a special exception for rentals that you can deduct $25,000 worth of those losses against non-passive income if your income is below $100,000. And that's joint or single. So if you're filing joint or if you're filing single, it's still that $100,000. If it's over $150,000, your income, you can't deduct those losses anymore. They carry over. You don't lose them, but you can't deduct that 25,000. And if it falls somewhere in the middle between 100 and 150, that $25,000 allowable loss, that phases out. So you may not be able to deduct all your losses. Maybe you'll be able to take some of it depending on where you fall in that in that range, but that's a that's a little I guess quirk in the tax code that allows you to possibly deduct real estate losses if you're not a real estate professional. So for that, the app, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, is that twenty five thousand in excess of depreciation, or does that include the depreciation as the as the loss? So depreciation would be included in there. That's net after everything. Okay. Yep. So for the average person, basically, you know, we can write off up to twenty five thousand um, dollars if you're making less than one hundred thousand dollars. For the most part, for the average person with maybe one or two rental properties, that they're, they're they're able to write their any vacancies they have off, correct? Yeah, I mean, if if you're total, you know, if you have a few months worth of vacancies, and that means your gross rental income is a little bit lower than you expected, and therefore your expenses exceeded it, yeah. If you're hundred, if you're under that hundred thousand, certainly you'll be able to have some. If you have a loss, you'll be able to deduct at least a portion of it. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. And so, sorry, go, go, ahead. go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I was just gonna say one uh, one thing. Once you exceed that hundred and fifty thousand dollar mark, which is uh, uh, the point where you wouldn't be able to write off those $25,000 in rental losses, then you got to shift focus with a W-2, right? Then it's, it's no longer, okay, maybe I can't qualify for a real estate professional. I can't deduct these losses. What do I do, right? Now I have these rental properties. They're producing tax losses and I'm frustrated because I can't get any of the benefits. So that's the point where, like I said, you don't lose these losses. They carry over year after year. And you can use them in the future to offset passive income that you earn in the future. Or if you sell a property, you can offset some of the capital gain or maybe all of it. Uh, but if you keep carrying over these losses, you want to make sure if you're continuing to invest, and a lot of us investors, the goal is to scale, right? Get to that passive income, financial freedom lifestyle. So if you're scaling, you can structure and strategize your next investments to see you know, where, where is that going to fall cash flow wise? Where is that going to fall taxable income wise? Maybe I can generate more taxable income with an investment over here and use up some of these passive losses as opposed to an investment over here. That's just going to create more of a, a loss carryover. 
and, and there are certain investments you can make. It doesn't always have to be rental real estate. It can be a passive investor in a, a friend's flip. If they're doing a flip, you can just be a passive investor. That's passive income to you. Um, so there are ways to, to generate passive income to help you utilize those losses that you can't currently use. So there are certain things you can do to, to skate around that a little bit, but a lot, with a lot of things with the W-2, you know, you're a little limited. So this might be a somewhat high level question and I don't want to throw off the audience too much, but if you're going to sell a property and you could, and you continue to roll over these losses, some mm -hmm. of these losses can be used to kind of offset the capital gain. Yep. If those losses were used and you still had a substantial capital gain profit. Mm -hmm. Could you also use that in conjunction with a 1031 exchange or something else to kind of shield that taxable portion of the income? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So if you're using a 1031 exchange, let's break some of that down real quick. I know we're talking. Right. About, yeah, right. let's, yeah, let's, yeah, no, no, that's good. It's great. But like, <laughs> yeah, let's, let's explain some of these things. I know some people are like 1030. What the hell are you talking about? You know, so. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So 1031 exchange in the most basic form, it is very complicated uh, uh, section of the code, but in its most basic form, it allows you to exchange quote unquote, one uh, like kind property. So you can basically sell a rental property and roll that money into a new rental property, one or multiple, uh, and, and defer the gain on that sale. So it's not really a sale, it's an exchange. You're basically, you don't have to exchange literally with the seller, one property for the other. You can sell and then, and then buy, uh, but it allows you to defer that gain. So you keep rolling it over and you keep exchanging and you keep trading up and trading up and deferring the tax and you're building your portfolio without any tax hit because you're not uh, paying any capital gains to tax. So to answer your question, Mike, if, if you did a 1031 exchange and, and you exchanged and deferred all taxes, you wouldn't use any of the carryover losses. It would, you know, it would defer everything, but there are certain times where you do exchanges and there's a portion of it that maybe you don't, because with the 1031 exchange, I'll back up a little bit because I know it's a little confusing with all these code sections being thrown around and all these different tax words and lingo and everything. So I'll back up a little bit. But in order to defer 100% of your gain with a 1031 exchange, you have to trade up. So trade up in, in uh, value. So if you're selling, uh, let's just take it very simply. If you're, if you're selling a property that has no mortgage on it for $100,000, you got to take that and roll it into a property that's worth more. So if you didn't, if you traded down, you have what's called boot. So if you sold for $100,000 in exchange for a property that's worth $90,000 when you paid for it, you have $10,000 worth of boot. And that's going to be, there's going to be a tax impact there. So if that's the case, then you can use some of your carryover losses to help offset that. But otherwise, you could defer everything. Nice. Yeah, that, that, I hope that was clear. I know it was a little tough topic. No, that, that was that was great. I understood. I understood everything that was going on, but I'm I'm just trying to keep the you know keep everybody in mind. Like, all right, yep, well. yep. <laughs> I know, so, I know. So yeah, that's that's uh, excellent. Ten thirty one exchanges um, yeah. in in trading up the uh, going just taking a step back uh, one just further step back for the average um, for the average investor for the uh, average military investor we're talking about you know they're doing their their first and second um, property and they're doing you know they live in the property for um, they PCS they move and they they buy a house with the intent to fix it up live in it and then sell it mm -hmm. what are the tax implications there 
Yeah. So uh, there's, <clears throat> I guess it would depend on if there's a rental aspect to it. So if you're doing a house hack, um, you know, if you're, if you're going to buy a multifamily unit uh, property where maybe two, three, four units, and you're going to live in one, uh, you know, it's, you're basically for tax purposes, you have almost two separate purchases. So we're allocating everything between a personal side and a rental side. And Dan, did I understand the question correctly? Is that, are we talking about multifamilies? Uh, we can go into multifamily. That's fine too. I was talking more about like the live and flip, but house hacking is fine too. Okay. That's okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, we'll touch on both because it's, yeah. it's, it's a little yeah. bit different, but same, same idea, I guess. So for, I guess we'll start with the live and flip since that was your original question. But if you go in um, and, and you're living in there and it's your primary residence, it depends on how long you stay there. So if you live in a primary residence for at least two out of the last five years, you have uh, the ability to exclude a portion of, or depending on how big the deal is, uh, you know, all of the gain um, on, upon the sale. So uh, if you're single, you can exclude up to $250,000 of capital gain. If you're married, it's 500,000. So if you do a live and flip and you live there for two years and then you sell it, uh, and you're making, uh, you know, if, if you're single, if you're making a profit of less than two, 250,000, you can exclude that entire gain because it's your primary residence. Um, you know, where you wouldn't be able to do that is if you, if you sold it within, you know, under two years, there are exclusions with that, especially, I know you have a military audience. So, uh, if you got called away for active duty, there are exceptions. Um, but <clears throat> generally speaking, uh, you know, if, if you do it under two years, then you would have a capital gain element. And, and that uh, does not have to be two consecutive years, just two out of the exactly. Pocket. Yep. Yep. Great point. Yeah. It doesn't have to be two consecutive years, just 24 total months. And that, and that's really huge um, for, for the military service members listening, because obviously we do have uh, PCS or permanent change of station moves mm -hmm. that happen quite often, but there's times where you may just go on a, uh, we call it TDY or temporary duty assignment. Mm -hmm. um, they may come back. So they may be gone for a year doing a small project or a small assignment and coming back. So everybody listening, keep that in mind. It's two out of the five. I almost said consecutive. It's not yeah, consecutive. <laughs> not consecutive. And there are, and there are special exclusions for, for active duty. Okay. So, so moving directly into the house, act is perfect. You said that. So I got two soldiers that, uh, that they've, they, they've actually watched my videos and uh, they bought, duplexes so both of them have a duplex uh, shout out to Sergeant Wong and Specialist Ajit so you guys see your name on the uh on the radio waves there so hey so um so these guys bought they, they you know they bought great duplexes they're living on one side and they're renting the other side out now when they go to move uh, actually just go into the tax implications of just that like what what would your advice be to them um just starting out essentially um when it comes to for tax purposes basically um from, you know, they've had a regular W-2 wage. Now they own a rental property and they're living in one side and, and renting the other side out. Does that change anything um, what they need, with what they need to do as far as tax implications? Yeah, uh, certainly. So it's always important when you're doing a, um, a house hack or, you know, owner occupying that you be mindful of how you're, uh, what, what these expenses are really uh, for. So what I mean is, do you have a direct expense for your rental unit? Uh, do you have a direct expense for your personal unit? Or do you have a common area expense? So it all comes down to good bookkeeping, good record keeping, 
Um, you know, we have an Excel spreadsheet that I like to give people who don't have, you know, one or two properties. Usually you can get away with an Excel spreadsheet. Um, you know, once you have a couple more bookkeeping software is probably a little bit better, but as far as an Excel spreadsheet goes, you can just code each one, you know, personal rental common area because you do have to do that split. So it's for tax purposes, it's almost like you have two separate properties, a personal primary residence and a rental. So we want to make sure that, you know, we're, we're putting the expenses where they go. We're taking the right amount of depreciation, uh, especially if you're doing work to it, we're allocating the rental costs correctly uh, and, and maximizing, you know, all tax deductions. This kind of, it's a, I think this is a good segue. I think it is. So we're just going <laughs> to ride it. But um, let's say they're starting to grow their rental portfolio. They're getting a little bit more savvy on asset protection. So they mm -hmm. go ahead and structure the LLC. Now that LLC is its own entity. It's its own business. If they're going to operate their management of, the, of their entire LLC out of their home, can they take office deductions or office expenses on a portion yeah. So yeah, that's, that's, that's an excellent question. Uh, so home office deduction is uh, there's most people, uh, if you're not an investor or if you're not a business owner used to be able to take a home office deduction, even if they were a W2 employee and they brought work home, you know, they could just do it and write it off as an itemized deduction. But with the tax cuts and jobs act, the recent tax law change, uh, they can't do that anymore. So now the home office deduction is only limited to people who run their own business. Oh, I didn't know right? that. So you can take it as good. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of people weren't too happy about that. And and when, right when, did that know, you know, <laughs> when did that happen? When did that happen? That was at the end of 2017. So oh, okay. the, the new tax law passed and then in 18 and obviously 19, yeah, there's no more home office deduction. They did, did away with all uh, unreimbursed employee expenses. So anything that you had as a W-2 employee, that you didn't get reimbursed for from your employer, you used to be able to write it off. Even, you know, miles, if you were driving, um, you know, if you had a travel job, yeah, you can't, can't write that out, off anymore unless you're self-employed. So that pissed a lot of people off, but. <laughs> I, and I, and I try to educate a lot of the, uh, uh, the younger investors coming in, a lot of talk and a lot of hype goes around having that LLC or that entity uh, primarily for asset protection. And although that may be true, at a certain point, you know, when you own your first property, that's all you have. You don't have a large uh, retirement account. You don't have many assets. You're only really protecting the house. But I always try to tell them that LLC, by structuring that business, it now gives you more creative ways to now finance some things. Because now that business can start earning its own line of, or its own credit. You can have yeah. more tax uh, deductions that you can take and everything else. So that, I did not know that you could only do it with an LLC, but that's- Well, really actually, no, you, it, I, sh I should clarify, because you don't, it, it's not only the LLC, it's the classification of the income and how you're doing it. So really, believe it or not, an LLC doesn't give you any tax advantages or disadvantages. It doesn't help you tax-wise. Obviously, asset protection is great. Legal, it's great. Uh, Tax-wise, it's what's that? It's how you incorporate, like the S corp, C corp. Yeah, S corp and C corp will change your tax status and will change your taxable, uh, your tax uh, impact. You know, your tax liability in some way, shape, or form, whether it helps you or hurts you. I've seen it both ways. <laughs> but an LLC really, really won't do that because it all passes through to you. So it's the nature of the income that will allow you to take the home office deduction. Is it, is it W-2 income? Can't take it in that case. Or is it investment or, or self-employed income? Then you, have, then you have a case to take it. Uh, so uh, the LLC is certainly helpful, but it doesn't, it doesn't allow you to take any more tax deductions than you would be entitled to otherwise. And I hear that a lot too. It's a great thing you brought that up, Mike, because people say, you know, 
I formed this LLC so I can take, so I can deduct my property taxes and mortgage insurance, uh, mortgage interest and insurance, but you know, you really didn't have to. So entity structuring is, is very personalized too. certain people like LLCs, certain people like umbrella insurance policies, you know, what works for the investor. Uh, but definitely, um, definitely you're entitled to your tax deductions regardless. Love it. Oh, yeah. full of nuggets. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a huge common misconception. Like, yeah. like, I think, I think I, I didn't know that until you, until you told me that, I think a while back actually. So yeah. as far as the pass through, so, um, yeah. yeah, that's, that's awesome. But they're still okay. important. Protect those assets. Absolutely. Absolutely. Worked hard for them, right? Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Don't let anybody take them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, Nick. So if you have, if there was one thing, one piece of advice that you could give to um, the the person that's just starting out investing, just bought their first rental rental home. What would that be? Okay. Am I putting on the CPA hat or the investor hat for this? Let's one? let's let's give two pieces. One's a CPA, okay. one with the CPA hat on, the other with just the regular investor hat on. Okay. Let's do the CPA first since we've been talking about taxes. So my CPA hat advice, <laughs> that would be analyze your opportunity costs. Don't be afraid to spend money. So if you're building a team, you need a team around you, right? If you're building a team of professionals, whether it's a CPA, an attorney, property manager, lenders, whatever it is, understand the value in that. Uh, you know, what is it costing you to save money up front in opportunity costs? Are you doing something wrong? Are you leaving money on the table? Are you exposing yourself? Hire out professionals that can help you. It only makes scaling easier. Um, when tax, when I talk about that for taxes, what I tell people is tax prep is a cost, right? That's going to save you time. You're, you're, you're hiring something out to a professional who can do it, but tax planning, tax strategizing, that's an investment. So when you're putting your money into tax planning, you should expect, and that's how we approach it anyway, on the other side of it, you should expect to receive that amount of money back plus more, hopefully, whether now or in the future in tax savings. So you're an investor, right? So think of it as an investment. Uh, when, you, when you're building your portfolio, don't be afraid or don't be spooked by onboarding all these professionals at once because it's only freeing up your time to build your portfolio and do the things that are important. That's where your value is, building that portfolio, making those investments. That's, that's key. That's huge. That's a great piece of advice. I, yeah. I love that. I, I don't think I've ever heard it quite phrased that way, uh, but it's so true at any scale period. I mean, even when you're looking at large corporations, what do they have? They have accounting departments. They have, you know, their sales yep. department is because yep. they understand the power of that, of leveraging through those, through those, uh, well, for them, it's employees, but it's the same concept. You as an investor, you're building a business. You need to have qualified individuals in those positions. That's yeah. Awesome. You said it. You said it. Yeah. It's, it's super important. And it's always, it's, you know, if you have 10, 15, 20 doors, by the time you say, okay, man, wow, I think I need a CPA now. It could be more costly, more time consuming to kind of go back and restructure anything. Same thing with an attorney, like what entity structure are you using? So I always recommend that. Obviously it sounds biased coming from a CPA, right? But it's just, it's just good business, uh, best practice as a, as a business owner, as an investor. Um, and I guess speaking of Dan, to put the investor hat on now, I, I, to give one more piece of advice, I guess, uh, would be take action, you know, and this is from personal experience. I sat in analysis paralysis for so long and you see these good deals come and go, but maybe they're not exactly what you're looking for. And it's okay to be picky. Obviously you got to make sure the numbers work. I'm an accountant, so I, I can definitely attest to that. 
but uh, you know, don't be afraid to take action, uh, you know, cause then you, then you start to get um, focused on maybe one perfect deal. And if it doesn't work out, you're, you're discouraged. Maybe it takes you even longer to continue on, but um, yeah, just know what you want to do and then get after it. I love that one so much. Taking action. It, I mean, Dan can attest to it. I'm all, my one piece is the same thing is take action. Yeah. Because like you said, that first deal, yeah, you may have a smaller margin, but you learn something. And more importantly, as you continue to grow, you get a hell of a lot more creative. Yeah, now, all yeah. of a sudden, you may be able to carve out, you know, two or 3% higher return by just doing something differently than, you know, what you would have done before. So I love it. That's good stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's the number one. I, I just finished uh, the military cash flow course. And um, I, I say take action, maybe I think at the beginning of every single lesson, <laughs> like every single like, hey, you know, you got at, at the end of the thing, I say take action like eight times just um, yeah. and, and go into detail. Because just like Mike said, just like you said, I mean, if you're not if you're not attempting to do it, you're never, you know, you're never going to learn every single time you do a transaction, even if you fail a little bit, you're sharpening your tools and you're getting yourself better and more prepared for the next time for that next deal. Um, it's just making you so much better. You fail, you're failing forward. We had a, um, yeah. my buddy Quentin Jud Judson on, he was talking about that failing forward, you know, I like um, that. That's, that's all. It's not, it's not a, people think of taking L as a loss, but it's not a loss. <laughs> it's a lesson learned, right? Yeah. So Absolutely, L is the, yeah. the lesson. I'm going to steal yeah. that one from you, Dan. Yeah. Yeah. So, but Hey, it's been a uh, great having you on Nick. Can you please uh, tell some of our listeners where we can find you at or, or how we can find out more about you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I luckily I have a pretty unique last name, so it's easy enough to find me. Uh, our website's iolacpa.com, A-I-O-L-A-C-P-A.com. There you'll find all our social media handles uh, and whatnot, direct contact information from me. Um, so yeah, always happy to help. Um, always poking around on bigger pockets, active on the forums. You can find me on there too, LinkedIn. Um, everything's just under my name, Nick Iola or Nicholas Iola. Um, and yeah, you can find me there. All right. And you'll find out all his tags right below. And then his information will also be in the notes section. So make sure to check that out. Um, if you're watching this on, or if you're watching this on YouTube or listening on podcasts, make sure to uh, leave us a like, leave us a uh, share and subscribe, you know, so we appreciate that. Leave some comments, share your love. Uh, I know Nick will be watching our, we'll see the videos. So if you have any questions, you can write it, write a question and I'm sure he'll reach, uh, reach right back out to you. So um, with that, uh, this is Dan Wynn. Mike Glaspie. Signing off. Thanks for having me, guys.